Thank you. I did a Vipassana course in 2009, but that was in England, so not uh -huh. quite as exotic, maybe. But, yeah. But uh, was that the Goenka kind of technique that you were doing? No, or? I mean, it's the same kind of school, but Goenka, some people, Somebody said from said it's the McDonald's of me, of meditation. It's yeah, definitely the same branch of meditation. It's it's uh, Theravada meditation, Vipassana meditation. But um, but no, it's not Goenka. You have the real people in front of you teaching you the techniques and and sharing with you. And so it's it's um, not you're not watching videos. Yeah, from just it was, one. It was also. interesting, but I I had no desire to really do it again really but uh, uh -huh. since then, i've done other things but that that yeah. i had no although sometimes i have a friend who does it quite often in england that i met through that course and uh -huh. he's encouraging me to uh, there's a few places i think in ontario that do it but uh, yeah it's always the same though i mean it's always going car and you listen to the tapes and all that if you get ever get a chance to go to that place in thailand mm -hmm. it's uh it's just different it's it's beautiful and it's not as uh you don't have to like sit all the time. You 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 also do walking meditation and standing meditation. It's there's never more than forty forty five minutes at a time. So and there's yoga also and chanting. Uh, so I I find it much easier and uh, and it's just amazing surroundings. So one morning you know the sun was rising and the the, the older monk was teaching us and you could see this big kind of goana walking by behind him and it was just it's a bit it's mind-blowing and you're sitting in a beautiful little uh ah it's kind of like a covered but there's no walls like there's a there's a big uh ceiling and you're sitting on sand and it's all organized for meditation it's it's just beautiful and there's hot springs there and uh, it's all organic food uh, it's just awesome <laughs> Yeah. And it's cheap too. It's the, you know, it's it's Thailand prices. So, yeah. so my name is Sebastian Bakarak, handcrafted geometric design, and these are further reflections. Welcome to episode 16 of Further Reflections. I'm your host, Mark A. This episode is being released on June the 24th, 2018, and it's going to feature a conversation with Sebastian Bacharach. Sebastian has a website, which is, which is bastubach.com, B-A-S-T-O-U-B-A-C-H.com. And there you can learn more about him. Mostly he's focusing these days on Islamic geometric art. And we talk a lot about that in the interview. Uh, he's uh, been interested in this for the last several years, and he's making a small business out of this right now. That website has all you can learn more about his art there. He also talks about the influences of Islam on his life and a bit about meditation. And at the beginning of the podcast there, we were riffing on he had been talking about a meditation retreat, uh, Vipassana meditation retreat that he'd done a couple times in south of Bangkok in uh, Thailand, and I had done a meditation retreat in the Vipassana with the Dhamma School back in 2009 in England, so it's not, yeah, not uh, quite as exotic as Thailand, and with that one, it was under the teachings of SN Goenka, and we watched videos, so we were just talking about that at the beginning. Sebastian is also, uh, 
he was with the uh, I knew him pretty much since maybe 2011 when I took an introduction to permaculture course uh, with him and his partner Benita of the Permaculture Institute of Eastern Ontario and for a long time they were running courses and I think they still do a few things under that banner but uh, more recently it's more recently the website has expanded to be called Living Hearth and you can find more about that at livinghearth.net and they do permaculture things there but they also do a lot more uh, healing arts and things like that there again that's livinghearth.net so I've known Sebastian for a number of years uh, mostly associated with permaculture and we do touch upon that briefly in the interview we talk about the transition movement as well and perhaps why the transition movement doesn't have as much traction as it used to have Sebastian has appeared on a previous podcast I did before. Uh, that's the podcast Reflections On. That was episode that was episode fifty one of Reflections On, and Sebastian talked about uh, living with little money and thriving. It was a presentation. I think it's called Lean Income and Thriving by Design. I recorded this at a permaculture convergence back in twenty thirteen. You can find more about that episode at furtherreflections.net and click on Reflections On. That's uh, the entire archive of my previous podcast is linked to there. They're hosted on the Internet Archive right now. They used to be on a website called Podomatic, but I had some issues. Once I downgraded from the paid uh, subscriber thing, I had some issues with that website, so now they're at the Internet Archive and at the Further Reflections website. I'll keep this intro fairly short. On the next episode of the podcast, it's going to be after July 1st, and that's the halfway mark of the year. So I thought I'd do another podcast, a solo podcast, on the movies again. I did one before for the whole of 2017 about some movies that have influenced me, and I was keeping track of the movies I watched during that year, which I haven't really done before. But maybe it was a little meandering because it was supposed to encompass the whole year, and maybe you forget about certain movies. So I'm going to do one for the first six months of 2018. If you like the previous podcast, that's episode five of this podcast, or if you want to listen to it, if you haven't listened to it, uh, you can learn more about that. I've talked in that podcast about the eventual Oscar winner, The Shape of Water, and a few other big movies like Star Wars, The Last Jedi. But also I'm into uh, different uh, world cinema, and I talked a bit about the works of, uh, for instance, Louis Mal and stuff. So you can check out that episode. I'm not sure who the guest will be after that. I do have a few things I'm tentatively lining up. But uh, hopefully the podcast uh, continues every second Sunday as it has been. Just as a uh, taster for the next episode of the podcast, I recorded my thoughts on two recent movies. Um, on Chesil Beach and the movie Disobedience. They're both, I think they both came out within the last six months. And I saw them just recently at a local independent cinema, actually in a back-to-back screening. So I thought I'd record something about them while they were still fresh in my mind. And I'm going to play that after Sebastian's interview. So you don't have to, if you don't maybe like what I have to say, you don't have to suffer through me to uh, hear Sebastian. But I do hope you hang on past the interview to hear me talking about those movies for about eight minutes. And uh, now here's my interview for about half an hour with Sebastian Bacharach talking about Islam and Islamic art. And we'll catch you next time.
Okay, so we're joined on the podcast by Sebastian Bacharach. So welcome to the uh, program, Sebastian. Okay, so I'll give you a chance to give the, I don't know, your background or an overview of who you are, and then we can, I know you want to talk about your art and things, but just give us the, the background maybe or the... Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. <laughs> well, I grew, I grew up in France, I, uh, in Paris. I've traveled quite a bit in my life. I've lived in different countries. I, I've lived in Ireland. I spent a good chunk of time in Australia. And I lived in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And now I've been here in Canada, in Perth, for about 10 years. So... Um, so yeah, that's a little bit me in terms of my physical uh, wanderings, and um, I I was very much a rebel kid, a rebel teenager, and uh, and uh, an activist um, for most of my life. And yeah, it kind of uh, slowed down a little bit in the past few years. And as I'm doing more and more art, I guess I find uh, I've less of a need to be an activist. We can talk about that later. And uh, also I have a big, big side of me that's uh, environmental activism and gardening and growing food and teaching or guiding people through doing that kind of stuff. I, uh, I really like to empower people. So teaching, teaching and showing people how to uh, be more sustainable on the planet is, uh, is something that uh, gets me pretty excited. Yeah, we yeah. can we can touch on that again. But uh, I know you like to touch uh, at first on your art because that's the mm -hmm. main thing you're. Maybe I, I not. It's fair to say your main uh, thing you're interested in right now, or the thing you're it, that preoccupies you right now. Yeah, that's definitely what I spend a lot of my time doing these days. Is is um, doing art around uh, Islamic geometric patterns and Islamic geometry. I was doing drawing mandalas for a long time, for maybe the past 10, 12 years. And, uh, and I, I forgot how exactly, but I, I uh, stumbled upon Islamic geometry, the kind of geometry you find in mosques and in, on Quran pages. And um, I got really excited when I saw that, just uh, for different reasons. Just, one of them being that it's it just uh, is really beautiful and very um, very uh, elaborate and there's a lot to learn and also because I have uh, a long history around uh, with Islam basically so it kind of brought me back brought a few things back together for me. Um, okay, and so why don't you tell us more about the history with uh, Islam and. How yeah. Was. Yeah. So, so as I just mentioned a minute ago, I was very much a rebellious kid and teenager, and I was uh, like a punk anarchist when I was, you know, sixteen, seventeen, and uh, and as part of that, I didn't really believe in anything, um, no God or just any idea of of spirituality or the divine. And then I. Um, I traveled with my brother when I was I was 19. He was just barely 16, I believe, and we we left and went to spend um, a month in Senegal in West Africa together. And so Senegal is is a Muslim country. I think it's over 90, 95 percent of people there uh, would consider themselves Muslim. And there I had an insight. That, I was there a few times there. After that, we, we created a non-profit to fight racism. And so I went back quite a few times to Senegal and deepened my relationships with people there. And, uh, and I had insights a few times into, um, not exactly sure how to describe it, but uh, something bigger than me. I, I call it the divine. I, I don't like to say God, the word God too much, because it Kind of makes me think of an old guy with a beard uh, looking out, looking down on you. But I, I like to speak about the the divine, the divine essence, and that's kind of how I like to s describe that notion. And so anyway, I had I had some insights, and then uh, that led me to learn more and read more about Islam. And also, my best friend in high school, one of my best friends in in high school, was um, or is a, a Muslim guy who um, 
became very, very uh, involved with Islam and practicing a lot. So it, he was a big influence on me. And, and anyway, all that led me to convert to Islam when I was in my early 20s. And uh, I kind of did that on my own, pretty much, like with not, not too much of a community around me, except for this one friend that I mentioned. And that was kind of it. I read and learned more, but I never really practiced anything until, um, until a few years ago when I got more into Islamic geometry and I happened to meet a group of, of people who, with like-minded values in, uh, in Ottawa, a group of Muslim activists. And um, so, yeah, I connected with them and I still do. And, and uh, that kind of reconnected the whole thing with the art and, and meeting these people kind of reconnected me with Islam and its culture and, um, and its practice a little bit. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely getting closer to, to this part of me. And also now I have a big community of people around the world because I'm on social media quite a bit and doing Islamic art uh, kind of connected me to hundreds and hundreds of Muslim people all around the world from, from all walks of life, whether in London where, I, where I, did, I took a course last year or all over the world already. Um, I'm more interested like what it was specifically about the, the teachings that maybe drew you to become mm -hmm. a Muslim I mean you didn't you said the divine but then you studied yeah. it right so what was it yeah. in the the writings or the, the mm -hmm. holy book or whatever that uh... I like that in Islam there's kind of a direct relationship with the divine there's no there's not too much um, clergy and it's very much you and the divine directly I find more than than in Christianity for example and uh, I, I very much liked that. And also the base of Islam is the notion that there is no God but God. So um, so both these notions of, of just kind of having a direct relationship and the fact that there is no God but God, meaning that um, uh, objects, for example, are not sacred or don't hold much more of a meaning than, than the, just the object they are. I guess as something, you know, like I, if I if I may, I just want to compare with like the notion of Christianity, and we have Jesus that often is I'm not exactly sure I don't know Christianity very well, but is made in the image of God, or you know, so in Islam we don't have that, like we can't really start imagining God at all, and uh, and I like that because then everybody can have their own interpretation, and and uh, and it also comes. It also keeps the the depth of a force of a power that uh, we believe or I believe created everything, created everything. <laughs> so, so yeah, it just has to be a very big force right there. And I don't think human beings could be uh, anywhere close to that uh, at all. Okay. I was watching a documentary the other night, uh, The Story of God, and one of uh -huh. the episodes is uh, Proof of God, and they were talking about Islam, and to them, I guess, the uh, proof of God is in the word of the Quran, I guess. Uh, uh -huh. Does that spark anything when I say that? Well, I mean, definitely the Quran is, a is revealed, so it definitely is the word of God. I'm not sure it's the proof of God. There is a lot of people, there are many people who kind of analyze the Quran and see a lot of uh, amazing mathematics and uh, just um, amazing, just the way it's structured and written. So, so they see a lot of, I think maybe that's what you mean by the proof of God, because it's, it's uh, yeah, there's, I forgot exactly what it is, but um there are, you know, certain numbers of of uh, times that things come back, and words, and 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 uh, mathematic relationships within the way it's structured. So that's maybe what you're talking about. Yeah, they they didn't go into too much detail. They were just comparing mm -hmm. it to some places where people believe God is within them and stuff. But this this is like something external that's proof of God. Mm -hmm. But it, it was a very brief section. Right. We're also talking a lot about uh, Islamic calligraphy in that episode. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you 
have a relationship to that. A lot of the mosques, I think they're a lot yeah. big part as much as the artwork is the calligraphy, I think. So. Yeah. Yeah, there is a kind of a hierarchy in Islamic art and calligraphy is definitely at the top. I think because you write, you know, the message, usually it's, these are um, pieces of, of the Quran, like some surahs or some just, uh, yeah, just parts of the Quran. I think that's why, and it's also very beautiful and it's very hard art and skill to learn. It takes years and years. So that's why calligraphy is at the top and, um, and the ge geometric patterns are below and they kind of serve to enhance the calligraphy. Uh, sure. Do you want to talk about a bit about London and your, you did a course there? So tell, mm -hmm. us, tell us how that was, what you learned there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, um, last year, so about just about a year ago, exactly now, I, um, I left to London and spent three weeks there. Um, and uh, th there, is a, there is a school called the Prince's School of Traditional Arts. And that's not where I studied, but my, my two teachers did study there. And the, the school I studied at, their school, is called the Art of Islamic Patterns. And I, so I did a three-week intensive course there. And it was just really, really powerful for me, not only what we learned there, but just to be every day going and learning that for a whole day and then coming back home and uh, practicing and also kind of getting to know more and more people. And it was really powerful thing to have this time for me. And I, I'm really, really grateful that I was able to do that. But also the fact of being in London for three weeks on my own and being able to do what to learn what I wanted to learn, it just put me in a very happy, happy place. And I was able to visit some museums and and some uh, exhibits that uh, were interested. There is a lot of Islamic art there just because of that school, having been there for quite a few years. So there are many artists who do this kind of art and yeah so there, there's a lot going on in london when it comes to that obviously it's a big city so there's a lot of also um, migrants and people from from you know coming from the islamic world with their own culture and art and all that so but i think you would find that anywhere in paris or you know in toronto for example but what is special about london is really that school so for the past, and I don't really know exactly how long they've been existing, the, the Prince's School, but I would say probably, you know, 15 or 20 years. And so that has generated a lot of interest and a lot of students of Islamic art in London. Yeah, so being there was, was really a treat for me, and um, I'm really grateful that I was able to do that. And I learned, I learned some different applied skills that I use today, I'm doing more and more marketry with uh, using these, the patterns, the geometric patterns with wood veneer and cutting little pieces of wood veneer and gluing them uh, on a piece of wood. And so it's a, it's a very beautiful result that I get from that. And I'm doing more and more of that these days. And uh, I still would like to find some more useful objects to to do that on right now i'm just doing it as a as a wall wall hanging piece of art but i'm hoping to to do more useful things i'm, I'm connecting with some some people who do woodworking and cabinets and things like that so hopefully having my marketry and custom furniture and you know kitchen cabinets and things like that down the road would would be pretty exciting to me okay and you have been making a little bit of a business out of this. So how's how's that been going? And uh, talk about the process, maybe. Yeah, well, I'm still in the process of uh, getting that going, to be honest. I uh, I do have a social media presence and an Etsy store. And I, I did last year to take part in two uh, Christmas shows. So And that that was really good. I did, um, I did sell quite a few things there. But uh, I, I still definitely need to, to develop that. And I think 
finding new ways and new new things that exactly what I want to do, I guess. I need to find more an identity and what what I'm really into and what I'm doing. And yeah, what I sold mostly at, uh, during Christmas was some um, platonic solids, some some coloring and folding sheets. Basically, the the pattern. Some of geometric patterns are on a on a sheet of cardstock, and for people to color, and then you can cut them into a shape that you can fold and glue together. And um, they're basically little 3D objects that you can hang on the Christmas tree if you have one, or anywhere else really in your room. So that was pretty exciting, and I think people bought a lot of them because it was just before Christmas and uh, they could really do that as a family because the kids could color or the adults also could color, but it's the gluing, the cutting and gluing is a little bit uh, more difficult for very young kids. So I think it was a great family activity for, you know, kids and grandparents, for example. And I did sell a lot, a lot of those uh, before Christmas and um, I still have them on my Etsy store available. Let's sort of, you mentioned mandalas earlier, so let's sort of turn to meditation. I know you wanted to say something about that. Yeah. Uh, How does that factor into your life maybe? Yeah, well, I've been doing meditation for many, many years. I took a first meditation course, I think, uh, in Thailand when I was there in 2001. And I did a 10-day retreat in Thailand. And since then... I've been trying to keep my meditation practice on and off, sometimes more off than on, but sometimes more on. <laughs> and um, since I started doing more and more art, I've noticed that uh, I do a little bit less meditation and my, my type of art is so focused. When I do it, it's so intricate that uh, I think it kind of tends to replace the more formal sitting of meditation because uh, because it just is so focused that uh, it is kind of like a meditation. Yeah, so it's it's just a very interesting thing that uh, at the beginning I was having a hard time wrapping my head around and I uh, speaking with friends who also do a lot of meditation. I, I think uh, that's what I'm realizing, that sometimes my art takes the place of, of this meditation practice. I, I still want to find a balance because I... I Still, don't think I find I I miss the meditation, the more formal meditation practice sometimes. So I, I want to find a good balance in that. But uh, but the type of art that I do is so focused and intricate that uh, it tends to replace meditation a lot of times. So yeah, yeah. So it's been very interesting that way. Well, I I, I really like Thailand. Uh, I think it's a very easy country to travel in. And uh, and I like also that uh, there's a lot of spirituality. Buddhism is very big there. And so that's where I also learned a lot of my spirituality. I have my, not only Islam, but I have a very also big kind of Buddhist philosophy background. And... um, yeah, so I, I just enjoy that you can walk into any temple there and, and sit for as long as you want. It's not just for tourists. I mean, most temples there have a real life, and uh, and that's very awesome. It's it's um, it's not in every country that you visit. That I, I know in France, for example, if you walk into a church, many churches are just uh, empty of people there. Um, they're just museums, basically, a lot of them. So there's much less of a practice. And I appreciated that in Thailand. That's one of the things I like about some churches, that they're, when there's people worshiping and at, there's an active, maybe, yes. congregation. And I, I was in China, right, teaching. And mm-hmm. I, I found that in China, some temples and stuff, mm-hmm. very uh, active. But maybe Islam, I don't know. It, it seems to be, a, maybe, to me, a little bit, more secretive or something like I don't. I don't feel like the muster is open sometimes. Maybe that's just <laughs> well, my perception. Maybe, but it probably is. I think you could just walk into a mosque and see what happens. Uh, yeah, I, I was uh, lucky to walk, go into a few mosques in London and uh, be welcomed. Some people had no idea who I was or whatever, but I think uh, people definitely welcomed me. No, I think I don't think Islam is more secretive. It's just uh, definitely. 
you know, is maybe more cultural. And uh, so it's true that uh, some, you know, maybe in the, in some mosques, people are, in, how to describe that? Um, people maybe know each other better inside a mosque and they always see the, the same people. So, so maybe that's what gives the people from the outside an impression that it's a little bit more secretive, but it, it's not. It's it's really open, and uh, and anybody can walk into a mosque and uh, and chat with people. Yeah. yeah, you know, maybe maybe in some mosques that are very touristic or that people really want to go to, maybe that is true. But if you go to a, a little neighborhood mosque that is that has nothing special, it will be uh, probably different. Obviously, if you show up, you know, on Friday when there, there are the big prayers and all that. Um, people are going to be le- less available for you, but um, you mean because I, uh, I think in Paris the big the big, big Paris mosque, which, which is beautiful, sees a lot of tourism, and I think they close it on Fridays or at least some part part of the day, just so people can uh, go and worship and not be amongst tourists. Uh, um, so we can maybe spend a few minutes talking about uh, your kind of environmental issues and permaculture but i know mm-hmm. one of the things i know you are doing is working with first nations at some point in the last few years so mm-hmm. tell us how they they have influenced you maybe yeah we we were very grateful so i work a lot with my partner bonita and actually these days she she does a lot more work around permaculture and around the environment than i do but we were very fortunate to be invited to teach uh, a couple of times on Manitoulin Island with um, some Anishinaabek people. We just became really close friends, or maybe not really close friends, but we definitely became friends. And we had a lot, many, many hours of conversation exploring a little bit of the overlap between permaculture principles and the design principles around permaculture and, and the and the the traditional Anishinaabek teachings, and so that was really really powerful and enriching, I think, for everyone. And we ended up teaching a permaculture design course for for two weeks there, mainly with the people from the actually, yeah, 95 percent with people from there, and um, yeah, so so it was just really powerful and enriching i think for everyone to to have that time and so we're very grateful it was with an art organization there on manitoulin island called uh debajamujig debajamujig storytellers and um, they do awesome awesome theater work and artwork and they have a very big focus on the environment so the environment is part of their mandate basically and they mix a lot of art and the environment and activism and they grow a lot of food and they also have an, an, an awesome space to work in with a commercial kitchen and with gardens and a theater so it was just really a beautiful experience for everyone and we were lucky to to also see them in different occasions we went down to harvard with a, with a three people from Manitoulin Island to present uh, at a, like a, I forgot exactly the name, but it was a spirituality and, and environmental conference at Harvard. So, so anyway, we've participated in a few events like that and um, yeah, just um, explored the overlap between, between permaculture and the, and traditional indigenous teachings basically. And mm-hmm. I, I put out a podcast in 2013, which is archived at the website. But uh, you you were with the Permaculture Institute of Eastern Ontario at that time. But mm-hmm. since then, you've kind of branched out to this uh, living hearth. So I don't know if you want to talk yeah. about what that's all about. Yeah, well, Permaculture Eastern Ontario, we, we found, was limiting us to do only permaculture and in Eastern Ontario. <laughs> so we kind of wanted to be able to do a little bit more, and especially because Bonita also does a lot of healing work, uh, Reiki, and nonviolent communication. So I think mainly she wanted to be able to, 
to do that through, you know, to just to have a website basically where, where she could do more of that. And in reality, now actual work didn't change too, too much, but we, we needed to change our name for that. Are you still involved with Transition Perth? And is that, how's that going? Really? <laughs> well, I'm uh, Transition Perth is very much at the sleeping stage right now. We we uh, are not very much doing anything except for uh, running the community garden. There is a new community garden in Perth, so and that is run in collaboration with the Table Community Food Center here in Perth and with uh, Transition Perth. But we haven't organized meetings or any other events lately. We're kind of keeping the container there just in case, you know, in case somebody wants to launch something. But uh, but we're not busy at all. <laughs> so when we when we had uh, Kari Rabbi on the podcast, we were talking about Transition Ottawa and how that kind of, I don't know about failed, but it's sort of yeah. lacking momentum and it's almost yeah. non-existent now. And it seems mm-hmm. like there was a lot of momentum around the time, like I remember 2010 and yeah. 2011, 12, there was, yeah. seemed to be a lot of momentum in that direction. But then in the last few years, I've noticed uh, like a lack of these things. I don't know yeah. why that is. Do you have any thoughts? Or well, anything? I've definitely given that a lot of thought because uh, I was one of the co-founders of Transition Perth and so it was a little bit uh, my baby or some of our baby and uh, so I've given that lots of thought and I'm not I think the transition movement the transition movement is very much based on people leading and creating projects and events and uh, leading the way and i think in our society people are very much used to following more than leading and the transition model is well come to a meeting come to the organization and do something like create you know what create the world you want to be in basically and i think people are not used to that and people are very busy just uh, doing their thing and whatever they do. Uh, and we live in a world where there's so much distraction that it's hard to focus and, and commit uh, on in the long term to doing a project, like a particular project, whether it's, you know, let's say you wanted to organize some kind of food, like a community garden or some food action or some, you know, anything like you just have to do it and commit to it and see it over a few years and i I think many people are not uh, ready to do that so i think that's a little bit maybe what we have in common with with uh, transition perth and transition ottawa i'm not as familiar with transition ottawa as i am with transition perth but i definitely think that's what happened with transition perth there was a few organizers a few of us and we were busy trying to organize things, keep, keeping the meetings going and the website and just keeping a presence. And But beyond that, we needed more people to really launch actual projects that could be seen and that could be developed and duplicated and made more long-term. And we, we just uh, didn't have those people. I think one of the... We were, I know, knew you from uh, Permaculture Ottawa, and I think that was one of the problems with that, right? That people wanted to do more projects and it became mm-hmm. like a bureaucracy almost, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's really hard to, you know, when you launch a new group like that with with the freedom from funding, I guess, meaning that you're, you're just fully volunteer-based. I find it very hard to find the right balance between the admin, meaning organizing meetings and uh, keeping a little of a social media or newsletter presence and a website. So that takes a lot of energy already. And organizing events and and, uh, projects, starting projects and all that. And so you you know, in those, all those groups that we're talking about, they were the same people mostly doing it and some other people and so they had a, they had investment in it and they had a vision 
even if they were not able to do everything themselves. But then sometimes some other people showed up and they had other visions, uh, but they maybe they weren't able to commit fully to making them happen or they didn't have the skills. Or sometimes the personalities didn't really agree with everybody else or the vision didn't really, you know, fit exactly. So it's, it's a, it's a very much a juggling act and, um, it's an interesting one because all of my activist life I was really, and I still am, I think, I think it's good to keep freedom from grants and funding because then you can do what you want. And, uh, over the long term, and you don't really cater to grants too much. But at the same time, when you're just a group of volunteers, it's very, very tough to uh, to make it happen. So, so yeah, it's a trick. It's it's a bit tricky, you know. I would have seen, I would have loved to see, you know, two libraries and bike landing projects and things like that with Transition Perth. And uh, just um, didn't happen. And also, it's a small town here, so we don't have the pool of people that people in Ottawa may have. But then in Ottawa, it's the city, is so is much bigger. So people are scattered, and they may not come to a meeting, or they may not see the importance of having a little project on one the one side of town when they live on the other side of town. So yeah, all that stuff is tricky, and no, and uh, also we live in a world that is not really encouraging this kind of work. I mean, this is, you know, the the society we live in, and the powers that be. I want to say the economic powers that be. They they're trying to uh, just push us to consume things and and go to work and not have time to think about it too much. So um, so we're against um, big powers there. <laughs> Let's start winding this down. So I'll give you the chance to promote. Uh, I think you had a few things you wanted to talk about or promote things that are coming up. So this episode yeah. will be released in about a a week from now, actually. So it's a pretty quick turnover. So you can anything in the next uh, couple of weeks you can promote even or okay. anything coming up. Or well, I don't have really anything to promote very uh, immediately, but I will be at the Perth Autumn Studio Tour. On Thanksgiving weekend, so it's a it's a beautiful time to come and visit Perth and the surroundings. It will be uh, you know beautiful in terms of the trees and the colors and all that. And there's also a lot of artists. I I don't have the brochure with me yet. It's just in the process of being made. But I know there are maybe five or six different studios that, and all of them welcome more than one artist. Everybody's. Uh, you know, pretty established or professional artist. I'm I'm part of the emerging artists. So that would definitely be a good time to come and visit, see my art and uh, see other people's amazing work. And uh, also you can visit me, visit, you know, my website. My website is bastubach.com. That's B-A-S-T-O-U-B-A-C-H.com. And you can also follow me on Instagram at uh, the same thing, at Bass to Back. So, yeah, and I'm also on Facebook. But once, once you find my website and Instagram, you will, uh, you will find all that stuff. Yeah, so, so please uh, connect with me, ask me any questions, and uh, I'd be glad to, to yeah, share more with you. Thank you for appearing on the podcast today, Sebastian. Thank you. Glad to be on. This is Mark A. of Further Reflections, and uh, this is kind of a sneak peek of the next podcast. We're going to talk about some of the movies that have influenced me in the first half of 2018. So I thought I'd just talk about a couple of movies that I saw recently. Um, They're by no means the greatest movies that I've seen this year, uh, whether they're new or uh, older movies. But uh, they were an interesting doubleheader that I did. I saw these two movies back-to-back at a local independent cinema. And those movies were On Chesil Beach and Disobedience. And On Chesil Beach is a novel that... Well, not a, it was based on a novel by Ian McEwan. And I think Ian McEwan wrote the screenplay for this movie. And it takes place originally in the... Sort of the... I think the early 1960s. And it stars Saoirse Ronan, who's done a lot of high-profile movies lately. 
and it's also this actor Billy Howell who's probably not as well known to North American audience maybe this is a kind of a BBC films production and it's sort of taking place on their honeymoon night and it's a story of how um, things kind of go wrong on their honeymoon night and they kind of uh, question and you have to excuse there's a little bit of noise outside there's some construction going on but they kind of question certain things about sexuality and the marriage but it starts off it's kind of a bit innocent a uh, little bit interesting and then it's flashing back and we learn more about uh, both the characters they're they're probably in their early 20s or so maybe something like that in the movie they're young anyway I think he might be a little bit older than her maybe but they kind of meet at I think uh, something that they do at uh, a university is it uh, maybe Oxford or something part of the one of them and uh, it kind of flashes back we see the family it's sort of showing you a little bit of a uh, slice of life of that time in England where maybe morals are shifting a little bit where there's this balance between more freedom of expression and maybe traditionalism and the parents are almost a little bit traditional and maybe there's some subtext with the parents as well but uh, we learn about his family her family a bit and then it kind of is going back and forward and then it's taking place over this one kind of evening where they're at a hotel and I suppose the Chisel Beach is the beach near the hotel and uh, Ian McEwen wrote the novel Atonement which was made into a kind of famous movie which also had Saoirse Ronan in it and I had seen that movie not too long ago again and I think that's some more probably I don't know maybe it's a bit of a bigger scale to it that movie because it takes place during the Second World War and there's more of a I don't know it grapples with maybe bigger themes this one might be a little more intimate um, it's sort of slow moving I would say at first and then it builds up to this big confrontation which is very quite well done but it does take a while it feels a little meandering until we get to this point and then it's kind of after that point things kind of it's sort of a bit fragmented again and then we even go forward in time at the end which is a little bit I don't know if jarring but uh, I suppose it's interesting it's a small it's not gonna get a wide release I don't think it really did um, it's a small intimate movie uh, it really it's about this character played by Billy Howell and that's about the Saoirse Ronan character and I think he kinda does a good job in the movie we kind of in some way sympathize with him and uh, we I don't know if we relate but it's sort of like um, there's engendering a little bit of sympathy and there's a little bit of sadness at the end of like a what if kind of thing what if things have worked out differently and so that's the movie on Chisel Beach and then we saw I saw this movie Disobedience which was yeah double header so I saw that right after and it's also a kind of a love story it's a love story between two women and they are Rachel Weiss and Rachel McAdams the two Rachels and the, there's this character basically um, Rachel Weiss's character is the daughter of this I suppose he's a pop like this well-known rabbi in London London England and he passes away and they've kind of been estranged but she comes to his funeral and he has this I suppose it's adopted son I guess who is gonna take over from him and she finds out that this other woman, uh, Rachel McAdams' character, is uh, married to, since she last saw them, she, he's been married to this character played by, is it Alessandro Nivola, I think is his name, uh, the actor, and um, she's married to him, but we kind of learned that there was something between these two women, and that really... Um, they were, I suppose, in love with each other at one time, and uh, it's talking about how uh, the kind of the very, I don't know, they're quite orthodox, it's a very Jewish movie, and then how she's kind of, 
she brings this kind of freedom to her life, but she's also trapped in this marriage and is very complicated. And then they, when they meet again, we learn how later on in the movie the circumstance of how they met, and um, then they kind of have this sort of affair, but can it really last in this sort of tradition and with the character, you know, the male character is poised to be this spiritual leader in the Jewish community and can he really, I guess, tolerate this wife? Well, she I don't even think she really ever loved men according to this, but she married him maybe just out of duty or something like that or maybe because the other woman had left, but it's a very... I don't know if dark, but it's sort of um, filmed in very drab colors, a little gray, and everything's sort of dull, but in some way it works for the movie because the Jewish people are almost reflecting their dress and their demeanor and things like that. Um, it's not a amazing movie by any means, really. There's not... Uh, probably the other movie that I saw there had a culminating scene this one might not have one single scene that stands out but I feel like maybe Rachel Weisz has played this kind of character before in this movie this kind of I don't know strong woman with maybe loose morals or sort of but sort of sympathetic and uh, I think this she kind of reminds me of this other movie complete unknown that she was playing a character I don't know if it's kind of like that, but um, Rachel McAdams is probably more of a standout, and the male character is a standout. Um, it's a different role for her, so I guess it's kind of interesting. So, yeah, if you ever see a chance to see it, it's it's well made, but uh, I don't know. It's interesting to learn more about the Jewish kind of uh, traditions and things like that. There's a, a movie, Fading Gigolo, with... Um, what's the guy's name it had Woody Allen and uh, John Turturro in it and it sort of involves a in that movie a, a Jewish character is falling in love with someone outside of the faith and there's a conflict and you know she kind of I don't know eventually probably goes back to the faith but this movie kind of reminded me of that so that's an interesting double header and if you tune in next week you hear more about some movies that influenced me in 2018 Take care. Well, that does it for another episode. Just a reminder, the website for this podcast is furtherreflections.net. There you can find the episode archive. You can find more about myself. You can support the podcast. And you can see the archive of my previous podcast, Reflections On. Thanks for listening.